Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are taking up the topic of the atonement. And I know that all of you have been waiting with bated breath, wondering why did it take them six years to get to the atonement? Is that not everything? Is this not the very question of our salvation? Well, you may recall, if you've been with us from the beginning, we did do an episode fairly early on entitled Poor Anselm, in which we defended Anselm's wounded honor against the aspersions cast upon him by Gustave Aulain and dealt with that famous book of his, Christus Victor, uh, at some length. We've also done episodes on the crucifixion and the resurrection. And let's face it, if you talk Christian theology, you talk salvation and how it comes about more than once. So we have covered those in various ways, but now we are focusing all in on the atonement. Dad, why now, after six years, are we looking at the atonement as such in isolation from the other ways we might talk about how our salvation is effected? Well, I think it's necessary to take a deep dive into this topic, which is kind of what we're going to attempt today. And also because in a recent time, I've been reflecting back on my education, and I rediscovered a text that profoundly influenced me when I read it in, in seminary, a text by Robert W. Bertram uh, titled, How Our Sins Were Christ's. And it's his interpretation of Luther's interpretation of Galatians 3, where Paul talks about how Christ became a curse for us um, and how our sins were Christ's. And I think in the latter half of this episode, we're going to just walk through Bertram's analysis of Luther's analysis of a <laughs> offensive, a central and offensive text uh, as it appears in modern ears today in Paul the Apostle. All right, great. Well, I have to say, even before I got interested in theology, I knew that Robert Bertram was an important person in the world of theology and in your own world, but I wasn't so clear on the details. And I remember, Dad, when I got to college and I was doing, I don't know, like the history of, of modern theology and philosophy or something, I came across in my textbook that this <laughs> uh, person named Bertrand Russell wrote an essay entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. And I immediately got to my email, which was a brand new thing and very useful at the time because you were living in Slovakia and I was in America. And I wrote you a distressed message saying, Dad, did you know that your teacher is no longer a Christian and wrote this essay in defense of atheism? <laughs> and you wrote back, no, 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 Sarah, Robert Bertram, not Bertrand Russell. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, little exercises for young theologians. <laughs> yeah, like get your name straight first of all. You got to get the facts straight before you're allowed to go into interpretation. Okay, yes, we will get to that that very good essay in a bit. But I thought we should back up and and just give a a little more framing to atonement because I think also atonement is a peculiarly Anglophone realm obsession. And that might be because I just learned atonement is quite possibly the only theological term that has its origins in the English language. Most theological terms come from Greek, of course, because the New Testament was written in Greek, or Latin, because the church very quickly turned over into a Latin-speaking church, at least for us Westerners, or German. Uh, we, we do have plenty of German that has, has come in, like Zitzimleben. But uh, atonement 
atonement is the the English language word. So maybe that's why we um, and uh, Americans and uh, also evangelical Protestants tend to be fairly obsessed with it nowadays, too. But it, I did a little digging uh, etymologically, Dad, and I think you and the listeners will find this interesting. The word started out as a contraction of at one, at own, and I guess one used to be pronounced more like own uh, back in the day. This was around 1300. And it just me- meant like in accord or in agreement. We are at one means we're in agreement with each other. I bet it was kind of like the 1300s equivalent of okay. <laughs> you know, it was just a consent right. word. And then it turned into the verb atone, to atone, and the noun atonement. And it kind of got its bump when Tyndale made his translation of the Bible into English. And he used it, uh, especially in Leviticus and Numbers, to translate the Hebrew word kippur, as in Yom Kippur, as in the Day of Atonement. So I have here, let me see if I can pronounce Tyndale's uh, English. This is 16th century English for Leviticus 16.6. And Aaron shall offer the ox for his sin offering and make an atonement for him and for his hosts. That sounded more Scottish than English. Sorry about that, people. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, he also used it a few times in the New Testament. So, for instance, in Second Corinthians, Nevertheless, all things are of God, which hath reconciled us unto himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given unto us the office to preach the atonement. Now then are we messengers in the room of Christ, even as though God did beseech you through us. So pray we you in Christ's stead, that ye be atone with God. Again, apologies for the accent. That was from chapter five. Um, but it's really, tra- as it's especially in the New Testament, Tyndale uses it to translate uh, words that we would now chiefly associate with the word in English reconciliation. It doesn't translate like lutron, the uh, ransom word, or uh, hilasterion, which is uh, very much disputed whether that should be propitiation or expiation or something like that. Um, it's not that common, but it does appear. Uh, uh, but then a further interesting thing, and I think this maybe tells us quite a lot <laughs> about this, especially the English language theological tradition, which is that this word that starts in the 1300s gets used by Tyndale in the 1500s. It was only in the 1660s that a tone started to mean make up for errors or deficiencies and later also caught the meaning of to make reparations. So interestingly, it really starts out as being more like reconciliation of like both parties coming into agreement, being at accord, and only much later means some sort of compensation for failure or wrongdoing. I think that's quite intriguing, don't you? Yeah, I sure do. Yep. I would just quickly comment, that's why Karl Barth titled the fourth volume of his church dogmatics, The Doctrine of Reconciliation. Right. I don't think there's really a good single word in German for what English speakers say as atonement. I mean, Bart's word is versöhnung, right? Which is much more like reconciliation in English than atonement. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so anyway, the I think what that shows us is that when we use the word atonement to mean like the work of Christ or how salvation comes about, um, and there is a definite how quality to the question rather than a, a what or a why. It's a how. How does the mechanism work? Um, I think we're already tipped towards this making up for, you know, reparations or compensating for deficiencies things. And um, I think that also... 
uh, we also see the influence then in how the word is used to translate the, the Day of Atonement. And um, so I just want to, Dad, maybe as a way of getting into Bertram uh, interpreting Luther, interpreting Galatians, maybe we can just look at another very influential context for talking about atonement in English, which is the... Um, the epistle to the Hebrews interpretation of Leviticus and the day of atonement and uh, other Torah right. parallels. Yeah. yeah. Fire away. Okay. Well, I, just before we go, when I, I, I didn't tell you, I was going to ask you this, but when you think about the, the epistle to the Hebrews, just as such, what comes to mind? Oh my, a sophisticated and complex uh, working with uh, Levitical um, and priestly traditions of the, Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. Yeah, it's it's a strange, hard book. I've I've gone back to it a number of times in the course of my my career, and um, looking, I I looked at it again afresh, actually, because after I finished my Transfiguration book, which we talked about recently, and the three pilgrimage festivals of Israel being so important to it, I suddenly realized when I was done writing. I've said nothing about the Day of Atonement (laughs) and what I was pursuing with the Transfiguration. The Day of Atonement was not a central motif. But then I went back to look at Hebrews and the Day of Atonement is the dominant motif of Hebrews. Hebrews is really a Christology according to the Day of Atonement, um, almost to the exclusion of everything else. Uh, Though you do, interestingly, I noticed that Hebrews does talk about what Christ does as rescuing us from the devil, which I was not expecting. I mean, it's not a major interpretive motif, but it's there. And also, I suddenly realized rereading Hebrews that almost all of Anselm's moves had to come from Hebrews because one of its recurring themes is we need to have a savior who is like us in every way except sinless. And that is like so much the burden of what Anselm is trying to do. Yeah, that's exactly right. And of course, behind that stands the uh, sacerdotal office of the priest in medieval Roman Catholicism. Anselm is trying to understand how the sacraments can be efficacious for sinners in debt to God for offending infinitely divine honor, and how can this debt be satisfied? And so he looks to these this reworking of Levitical traditions, uh, Day of Atonement, in Hebrews, as uh, providing the rationale for the for the new law uh, of the of the new covenant, uh, and so he presents Christ as the perfect priest who offers not simply a bloody animal sacrifice, but offers himself uh, for the salvation of his pilgrim people, who will therefore then follow him on his pioneer way. Uh, uh, through this uh, earthly pilgrimage on their way to their place in eternity. Mm. It is still definitely for Hebrews a bloody sacrifice. It's the last bloody sacrifice. Right. Uh, Hebrews Hebrews is very clear. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then where there is forgiveness of sins, there's no need to shed any more blood. But you're right that Hebrews is much more interested, I think, in Christ as the priest than as the offering. I mean, what makes his offering supreme is that it's the offering of himself. But it seems to me there's a lot more interpretive energy put into Christ as being the 
supreme priest of all who offers himself. Right. And I think that's why the Melchizedek imagery becomes important because Hebrews has to find a way of talking about Christ in a priestly way, which overlooks the inconvenient fact that Jesus was not a Levite and was not a temple priest. He has to be a, a priest of a different order and Melchizedek offers that. Um, so yeah, and, and uh, again, because... Uh, uh, Hebrew so so much argues about Christ's divinity against the angelic Christology, but also his true humanity, the constant refrains, he's like us. So I think, yeah, for, for Anselm working in a medieval priestly context, Hebrews is, is a great source. But uh, listeners, be warned. Here's, here's the real danger with Hebrews. As I was reading over it, it is so hard not to read it supersessionistically. I mean, it, it, it just offers itself to our ears now as the ultimate, you know, and, and that's actually why we call the two halves of the or two portions of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament that comes out of how Hebrews talks about it. But I would just like to raise the anti-supersessionistic point here that for Hebrews, the difference is the that Christ the priest supersedes the temple priests of Jerusalem, not Christian priests and Christian religion supersede Jewish priests and Jewish religion. That might seem like a distinction without a difference, but if you can't make that distinction, you will end up in the worst kind of supersessionism for sure. And you can just add to that the historical uh, contextual remark that at the time Hebrews is being written, the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed by the Roman siege, and the sacrificial uh, cult of atonement in Jerusalem has been made kaput. And (laughs) it's also, this is also true for Jews. Jews have to rework the the temple theology and transfer it symbolically and spiritually to the new existence of the synagogue and diaspora. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I, there, Hebrews so much uh, resonates a post-temple context. And I think when Christians go to the New Testament without understanding how soon after Jesus' death and resurrection, the temple is destroyed, probably about you know 40 years between the two events, and that everybody is in crisis about how to interpret it. And the Christian interpretation goes one way, and the what becomes rabbinic Judaism goes the other way. But to think, uh, I think um, my impression was always that Christians just instantly got the second Jesus rose from the dead. Oh, we're done with the temple. We don't need to offer sacrifices anymore. And then if you actually read a little more closely, you realize that they're still the earliest Christians before the temple's destroyed and the Romans send everybody out. They're still going to Jerusalem. They're still going to the temple to worship. So they are clearly in the presence of ongoing animal sacrifice. It's not like it happened like that. This seems to be a post-temple reconstruction on on both Christian and Jewish sides. Well, now what? (laughs) What do we do post-temple? And Christians interpret it one way, Jews another. All right. Well, I think that's enough to launch us into another reading of the atonement. And maybe someday we will get back to Hebrews, which is certainly worthy of sustained attention. But uh, Dan, right. why don't you start us out on, on how, how you'd like to get into Bertram on Luther on Galatians? Well, I want to set this up with a contemporary question of a fellow theologian, Ted Peters, out in uh, California. And I sometimes read his blog posts, uh, and it's, you know, he's a, a, a dyed-in-the-wool Californian now. And Ted <laughs> reported on attending the December program of his grandchildren in the public school. And he says, you know, there were cheery invocations of the winter spirit 
you know, ironically in sunny California. And <laughs> the children sang a Kwanzaa song and even a Hanukkah song. But he points out there was nary a reference to Christ and his birth. Making that observation, Ted laments that this is not even pluralism, but evidently a quite deliberate exclusion of Christianity. And so he finishes the blog asking, how have we Christians lost the culture war? And then he adds, I would like to repent, but I don't even know what for. <laughs> like I said, a genuine California theologian. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> the lament in the ashes of Christendom. <laughs> yeah. Ted and I exchanged uh, very good quality reviews of each other's systematic theology some years back. So I don't mean to, you know, make fun of him, but uh, I want to make a counter suggestion. I don't think it's chiefly the offense of real existing Christianity, but I think underneath this, it's the real offense of the cross that is at loggerheads with dominant trends in our contemporary Western culture. You've heard me articulate this Sarah many times as the um, sovereign self of modernity versus the crucified and uh, uh, reconstructed self um, of the Christian justification of the sinner. I would acknowledge immediately that offense at the cross can also be taken in ostensibly Christian churches and pious evasions of this offense of the cross in fact, on analysis, can be seen to stand behind the noxious, triumphalistic behavior of real existing Christianity that, that gives offense. How does that sound? Well, I mean, I would love it if uh, both churches and culture despisers of churches actually knew enough about Christianity to reject it. <laughs> <laughs> that would that would already be some kind of catechetical victory if they actually knew what they were talking about. Maybe I'm I'm less optimistic that they actually know that they're rejecting the cross. Um, I I certainly hear in younger generations they've been pumped full of all these notions about Christianity being fundamentally colonial or or white nationalist or you know that that kind of thing. And and so you know it's evil and bad. They have no idea that actually all the things they value derive from the very deep roots of of uh, Christianity's influence on Western civilization. So um, yes, but but let's hope that people actually get Christian values enough to be offended by them if what they really want is total sovereignty and competition and domination, um, which you know there's certainly plenty of that going around too. And I think that that's exactly kind of my point, Sarah, is that some of this very offensive behavior of Christian triumphalism theologically can be analyzed down to offense at the cross within the ostensibly Christian churches. Um, and then that, that gives us a segue to the, to the doctrine of the atonement, which you, you can go all the way back to Athanasius's treatise on the Incarnation in which he op the opening of the treatise is, why, why did the incarnate one have to suffer and die on a cross? Was this not most unbecoming, un unfitting uh, for the divine visitation of his human creature? And Anselm then goes on to say in the whole treatise on the doctrine of the incarnation, 
why it was necessary for the incarnate word uh, to suffer and die on the cross. And that attempt to explain the necessity of the cross is very Pauline. If you look at Galatians chapter 2, when Paul talks about the justification of the sinner, the ungodly, he said, if, 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 if this were not true, then Christ would have died to no purpose. That's a counter to fact. But of course, Christ died to a purpose, namely to provide for the justification of the sinner. And that, Sarah, is the heart of the offense. The offense of the cross um, is that Christ, and this is all rhetoric from the letter to the Galatians, Christ was made a curse for us. Christ was made to be sin. That's actually in Second Corinthians. Christ giving his life as a ransom. That's in the Gospel of Mark. This, this message um, um, that the cross is necessary to justify and reconcile real, not imaginary sinners, that's Luther, uh, in a, unavoidably, unavoidably, tells that we, ha- we all, we humans, have a big problem with our Creator, that we are rebels in thought, word, and deed, that we want to be God without God, that we want our sovereign selves to be little gods striding upon the earth, brooking no opposition. Uh, whether we want to be or not, whether we know it or not, we, have a, we are in conflict with our Creator and Redeemer. That's the co-message about the necessity of the cross of Christ. So to extend the attempt to understand what's going on in American culture right now, I've said before, I think we live in a time completely obsessed with righteousness and guilt. and as, But because forgiveness is no longer, well, as we'll see, <laughs> there cannot be any forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And because we no longer acknowledge Christ's bloodshed, we have to shed each other's blood instead, at least metaphorically, if not literally. So we also live in a culture of accelerating retribution for for any possible crime against righteousness, however tiny, which continually puts more and more people into the category of the shamed beyond redemption. So I think that so far as that goes, we can we can begin to make connections. But I think what will be interesting to see is if we can make a case that we have not just sinned against each other and need forgiveness um, offered th- through Christ's blood, not each other's blood, to set things right. But I think it will be interesting to see how can we say that we have sinned against God and that actually is serious and possibly even matters more than how we sin against each other. I think that that should be our, see if we can get there by the end of this. Yeah, I think that's right, Sarah. What you said reminds me a lot of the thought of Rene Girard and uh, his profound analysis of the scapegoat mechanism. Um, oh, yeah. Where there, is no, where there is no atonement reconciling us with the divine, uh, we are doomed to this scapegoating mechanism uh, to disown our own sin and offload it onto some uh, plausible um, scapegoat, some plausible substitutionary victim, and so forth. Yeah, for and sure, for sure. Sure. Then, And, you know, the other side of the doctrine of the atonement is that in good Christian theology, it has to—we have to struggle with these thoughts of Christ made to be sin, made to be a curse for us, until it breaks through 
to an unimagined act of divine love, agape love, love for real, not imaginary sinners, love for the enemy, love for the uh, the foul and the and the reprehensible and the deplorable, right? And in this respect, I remember George Lindbeck once making the remark that a, a doctrine of the atonement, which articulates Christ as the one who loved me and gave himself for me, those are Paul's words, would be a great greatly to be desired. And of course, he didn't think that any of the traditional schemes. And we've discussed these in past podcasts, um, the scheme of satisfaction of debt, the scheme of liberation from anti-divine powers, and the scheme of moral influence. Uh, He didn't think any of these schemes succeeded in articulating the one who loved me and gave himself for me. So that along with this offense of the cross, this co-message that makes us the sinner in need of forgiveness— the unrighteous in need of righteousness and justification. There's also this breakthrough in understanding to the to the divine love, and um, I think that can be corroborated with a quote from Nietzsche and a quote from Luther. If you'll if you'll indulge me, I'll indulge you, Dad. And thank you. That's uh, does that compensate for my sins? The indulgence? <laughs> no. We do not grant indulgences in that respect. Okay, but you'll indulge my quoting Nietzsche. I will indulge that. With the genuine insight of a real enemy, Nietzsche, I think, went to the heart of the matter. He He wrote that Christianity, in a stroke of genius, claimed that the offended God sacrificed his divine self to overcome the human guilt and reconcile those rebels. And then Nietzsche asks rhetorically, can you, he asked incredulously, can you believe that? (laughs) But what I'd like to point out is that whether he knew it or not, this apostate son of a Lutheran pastor, Nietzsche, was actually echoing the thought of Luther himself uh, in the Galatians commentary. And this is a little bit longer quote, but I want to read it. Luther writes, The human heart is too limited to comprehend, much less to describe the great depths and burning passion of divine love toward us. Indeed, the very greatness of divine mercy produces not only difficulty in believing, but incredulity. Not only do I hear that God Almighty, creator of all, is good and merciful, But I hear that the Supreme Majesty cared so much for me that he did not spare his own son in order that he might hang in the midst of thieves and become sin and a curse for me, the sinner and accursed one, and in order that I might be made righteous, blessed, and a son and heir of God. Who can adequately proclaim this goodness of God? End quote. Yeah, you know, Luther, I don't think, has a reputation for being a theologian of God's love. You know, maybe God's mercy, God's God's action, um, God's self-giving. But you don't usually hear the word love directly associated with him. And, um, you know, as I just think over, he's 
he's kind of modest. I would say almost bashful about it. I have the feeling that for Luther, God's love is so astounding and so intense that it's not something you stare into directly, like the sun. Every so often, you you peel back the veil and you look into the the burning heart of Jesus as that... Um, that particular Catholic devotion has it. And I think that actually really captures something that's deep for Luther, though he would certainly say it's also the burning love of the Father and the Spirit. It is a full-on Trinitarian mutual act of of intense, astounding, and Allah Nietzsche, unbelievable love for fallen creatures who have become his enemies. Yeah, absolutely. There's a place in Luther, I don't remember exactly where, where he uh, writes... Our God is a fiery furnace, aflame with love for us. Yeah, he also at the end of the section of the on the creed in the large catechism, he talks about about the the spirit revealing Christ and Christ revealing the Father and the Father's burning love for us that we could never have known apart from the Son and the Spirit's revelation. Okay, good. So we've established this that the offense of the cross is the co-message that I am the sinner in need of forgiveness. I am the unrighteous in need of justification. I am the dying one in need of the gift of new life. That's the co-message. But we don't really get this co-message until we break through to this fiery furnace aflame with love for us. So let's try to track that down. Um, I just want to make one one more other contemporary contextual remark about our approach here. I think the predominant interpretation of the cross nowadays is that we did a great injustice to Jesus. We, as figured by the Roman Imperium or Jewish religiosity, we killed him. Now, of course, there is a grain of truth in this, but that's not chiefly what the New Testament witnesses say. To be sure, we were the instruments of Jesus' death in the figures of Judas the betrayer, Peter the denier, the disciples who fled, also Pontius Pilate and the Sanhedrin. But as such, we humans were merely instruments, and here's the difficult point, of God's own will and overriding purpose to bring our human rebellion to its epitome, to its climax, in crucifying the Lord of glory, that he may in this way make good out of our evil once and for all. Now, what do we make of that theologically? (laughs) It means in the first place that contrary to popular religiosity, God isn't trying to make us better in the cross. God made us worse, the worst. So that is is very alarming. Instead of... um, it actually takes the power away from this thesis that we killed Jesus and demonstrated our injustice. It makes it so much more frightening. Um, no, God actually amplified our sinfulness to its maximum in order to accomplish his own purposes. <laughs> so we don't even get the pleasure of self-criticism here. We're, we're actually beyond that point with this thesis. All right. And then to make that explicit, according to the New Testament, it was God who put Jesus to death on the cross. And what's the evidence for that? The passion predictions of Jesus with their use of the divine passive, it is necessary in order to fulfill the scriptures, the divine scriptures. We have Jesus' own invocation of Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. We have Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane 
of surrender to his father's strange will that he suffer and die, die not only physically, but die the humiliation of being uh, uh, to all the world abandoned by his God and father. And this list of testimonies could go on. There's just no escaping the testimony of the New Testament, that it was his God and Abba Father who sent his own beloved son into that ignominious death on Calvary. This is the central problem of the doctrine of the atonement. Now, what are we going to do about that? (laughs) I I just want to add by way of support of that is that even though all four evangelists have different depictions of Jesus' last words from the cross, Mark and Matthew with the cry of dereliction, Luke's with Father into your hands, I commend my spirit, and John, it is finished. All of them, even with their very different, let's say, emotional depictions of what's going on, the the final conversation is really between Jesus and his father. They are they are the actors in this story. Um, that is what is theologically relevant across the board for all the gospels. That it it is really not you know these rotten people have put me to death, <laughs> but but father, this this is something that's happening between you and me. Right, and that's the climax of the. You know, especially in the Matthew and Mark readings of the cry of dereliction, which, of course, we should read the whole Psalm 22 there to capture the meaning of that. But I'm saying even in John's, it is finished. What is finished? The Father's will is finished. It's still with reference to the Father, not with reference to human sinfulness. Precisely, right. And, of course, Luke's testimony, um, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, is meant to, as a counterpoint to Mark and Matthew, I think, is meant simply to say that in in this event of God-forsakenness, Jesus does not break faith with his Abba Father. And it's just a bringing out a different side, that Jesus' passion is an active passion. And that's how we Paul can later say, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's an active act of self-giving, self-donating love. But we'll get to that momentarily. Let's now turn, Sarah, to Robert Bertram's exposition of the second Galatians commentary of Luther. Um, And before I begin this, Sarah, I know you have some uh, concerns about what you read. Why don't you give voice to them now before we get started? Sure. Uh, so first, I just want to say you said his Luther's second Galatians commentary. So he did one in the 15 teens. But the one that when people talk about Luther's Galatians commentary, they always mean the one that he delivered as lectures in Wittenberg in 1531, and then later slightly revised for publication in 1535. So just so you know, we'll put a link to the uh, the two volumes of Luther's works in English. Um, highly recommended. There are fantastic reading. Um, yeah, so just uh, I, I thought Bertram's article was outstanding in every respect except for one. And that was just the way he, Bertram, speaks about the law of God is always in, um, I would say, overstatedly negative terms. So let me just read a a couple of quotes here. Uh, For instance, he talks about the law and its whole tyrannizing mode of predication. Um, And then the law as the whole retributive order of things. Um, of Christ being incriminated and annihilated by the law. And finally, 
the law and its whole legalistic mode of predication, which is, is and uh, Bertram's point is that Christ annihilates the law. And um, so two things. One is that I, uh, I, well, okay, I wrote a long article called The Law of God that was published in Lutheran Quarterly some years ago and was reprinted recently in a, a kind of new book of um, Christian dogmatics from a Lutheran perspective. And going through using very much the Galatians commentary, but other sources as well, I point out that Luther speaks about the law in two ways, much as the Bible itself does. One as the law as the content of instruction or Torah that God gives for the good protection and flourishing of his good creation. And so an, an antinomian creation would not be a good creation or a flourishing creation because it would not be properly cared for. To receive a gift is to care for it rightly. And that's what Torah means in that sense of the law. But on account of sin, law also turns into the accuser against a sinful humanity. And in that respect, it takes over the role of mediating between God and humanity. Luther talks about the law in both these ways, and he regularly clarifies which version he's using. So for instance, his exposition of the Ten Commandments and the Catechisms is entirely a Torah approach, law as instruction. Whereas when Luther is attacking, say, good works as the means of salvation, that's going after law as accuser and mediator. And so my, my issue with Bertram is if you read this essay in isolation and think it represents Luther on the law as well as the Bible on the law, what you will get is only the law as accuser and mediator of the God-human relationship. You won't get any of the instruction. And frankly, I have seen so much downstream damage of this Lutheran antinomianism that I am hypersensitive to it when I see it. So I just want to flag that concern. Um, and I think later in the season, we're going to come back to questions about legalism and antinomianism to try to tackle this head on. But I just want Readers, I, I strongly urge you to read this essay. It is a wonderful essay. Just be cautious when he talks about the law in this, as, as all the law is, is accuser and mediator of the God-human relationship. That is not an accurate depiction, even of Luther, even in the Galatians commentary. Well said, Sarah. And, you know, and you could add to that, of course, the tacit anti-Judaism, that that antinomianism is always, is always lurking under the surface of that antinomianism. Yes, so and, with and for Lutherans, from antinomianism to anti-Judaism to anti-Semitism has been an almost inevitable sequence, as well as for much of the Christian church. We can't do that anymore, folks, so don't take that first step into antinomianism. Okay, and so I'll, I'll grant that. I think as we go along, though, I'll try to point out in some of these instances that you cited how... Um, Bertram's view is a little bit more dialectical than perhaps uh, you allow in in your your brief summary of it, but let's let's just treat that in passing. Okay. 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 Um, I think the first thing we have to um, emphasize is that for Luther, um, Christ is only a punishment bearer because he is first of all a sin bearer. That's the primary thing. Consequently, he suffered sin's punishment in order to lead us through it to life, righteousness, and peace. And as Bertram emphasizes, this leading us through it is not some otherworldly transaction, 
but a down-on-the-earth joyful exchange right here in time and space. Uh, so it is anything but Jesus took the rap for me a long time ago. I get off scot-free. That <laughs> is not what's going on here at all. It's and rather. I think, I think that really is the popular, at least American Protestant interpretation of the atonement, which is that, oh, Jesus loves me so much. He took my punishment for me. But punishment is the beginning and end of the issue. Right. And that's it's really a distraction because... We get to die with Christ. <laughs> we get to, uh, as Christ put our sins to death in the cross, we get to go to that same tomb and leave our sins there. And that means for the sinner actually to give up his existence or her existence as a sinner and then be in the hands, like a putty in the hands of the creator, making us into a new creation. Right. Actually, you know what? It just occurs to me, Dad, that's why a heavy-handed punishment theory of atonement is always matched with a heavy-handed demand for sanctification, because all Christ took away was your punishment, but he didn't take away your sin. It's your job to get rid of your sin and become a better person. So actually, the two are correlative. Right. Yeah, very good insight. Yes, that's exactly right. And then sanctification doesn't get understood then as rising up to new life in Christ uh, a, a life of righteousness, uh, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit, but some kind of effort to prove that I'm worthy of grace mm, right, by right. doing my part now, something like that. Okay, so Bertram begins his essay by asking, we have a problem of an apparent paradox that defies understanding. How can Christ be both the sinless God-man and at the same time a sinner? Christ was made to be sin. Christ, How can Christ be the divine act of blessing and be called here a curse? And Bertram points out it, this can be true for Luther because it's necessary for our, our salvation. In other words, unless Christ was our sinner, Bertram argues, we ourselves must be. But since through him we are not sinners— why? Because he has taken our sin from us. It follows that he was a sinner and had to be. In short, quoting Luther, our sin must be Christ's own sin or we shall perish eternally. <laughs> How's that for a dramatic, dramatic throwing down of the gauntlet? Yeah, no, it, it's really wonderful. And what I like about it is that it uh, one thing I've always liked about Luther, and I think Bertram brings this out, is that Luther starts with the fact of the cross and then works backwards to the severity of our sin, rather than trying to demonstrate empirically, look how awful we are, and and then we got to come up with some sort of solution for it. Right. The cross, the cross is, as my teacher J. Lewis Martin would emphasize, the cross is the epistemological watershed. You huh. either start with the cross or you absorb the cross into some pre-existing philosophy or worldview. Right, but the right, cross right. is the apocalyptic event that changes our perspectives on everything, including on our sin. Now, um, Bertram, then, now this is maybe the first kind of qualification of your concern about uh, antinomianism. Bertram writes that it was both the scholastics and the scriptures, whole, profound understanding of of moral predication, the same grammar of law, 
which ensures that our sins are ours and no one else's, and least of all the Son of God's. So here again, uh, Bertram Luther, according to Bertram, is saying, let's take the law at its most powerful and at its best. It says, uh, to each his or her own. Uh, how is that in Latin? Cuique sumum. Cuique sumum. To each his or her own. That's a, a basic fact of moral or legal predication. Um, uh, what you, you what is yours by your merit or demerit is yours and no one else's. That's what he calls this the profound understanding of moral predication that says, the devil didn't make you do it. You did it. It's your sin. It's your fault. You're responsible. Yeah. And any kind of, of moral or jurisprudential growth as a human being takes responsibility for your own sin. You can you can uh, charitably understand what circumstances in life may have tilted you one way or another or your own predispositions and your personality. You know, like gambling will never, ever be my sin. It just could not possibly interest me less. <laughs> but I could tell you all sorts of things that are, I'm definitely predisposed to. But in the end, to, to be a grown-up, to be a moral grown-up is to say, whatever the circumstances, causes, inclinations, I am responsible for my own sin. Now, Exactly the point. So, according to Bertram, what Luther is going to do now is show that this um, assigning of personal responsibility for sin is the key to understanding the way in which sin, including our sin, your sin, and my sin, belonged instead to the Son of God. That very same uh, moral um, uh, attribution of fault to the perpetrator, right, is going to be the key to how our sins were Christ's. Right. And this, of course, immediately raises the problem, which we already saw in the epistle to the Hebrews, is like, but wait a minute, Jesus is perfectly innocent. He is the one and only sinless man ever to have lived. So how can we, how can we make not only... Um, apparently morally evade our own responsibility for our sins by saying our sins are Christ's, but how can we possibly attribute that to Christ who is, by definition, the sinless man? Yes, and we're going to get to that, but first we have to understand that Luther, following uh, his understanding of Paul and Bertram following Luther, uh, announces uh, it's true that our sins did not belong to Christ in the sense that he committed them. Okay? So we're not saying that Christ committed my sin or your sin or anybody else's sin. Christ made me do it. No. Right? No. Not the devil, not Christ. Yet our sins, the sins that we have committed, are Christ's. And now this is what I think is really important. Not by means of some heavenly, transcendent, super-historical transaction, say, God in heaven, simply regarding our sins as Christ or simply imputing our sins to Christ. This is the forensic theory of justification of Lutheran orthodoxy that Bertram is very subtly criticizing. But rather, our sins becomes Christ, Bertram writes following Luther, by means of his own imminent historical bearing of those sins. The way I like to illustrate this, Sarah, is saying when Jesus forgave sins, 
he didn't wave a magic wand and disappear those sins into real in, into thin air. When Christ forgave sins, he took the sins from those he forgave and he took them upon himself. He took responsibility for the sinners whom he forgave by assuming on his own self their burden of guilt. Yeah, no wonder people hated him. <laughs> thought he was he was undermining society and and there there is a real i think sense we should come to at some point about how forgiveness does seem like undermining morality in that respect which is why i think it's so important in the the gospel story of jesus that he goes around forgiving sins and then dies for them that there is a, a continuity between the the ministerial action of forgiving and then and dying for it and i just wanted to point out i really thought this was a great and and point of bertram's which i almost wish he'd spent more time on which is not having an imputation theory of how christ bears sins and again i think that's one of those kind of fallback protestant assumptions of of imputing is the only way it really happens but i think this is where we really need to distinguish sharply between the doctrine of the atonement and the doctrine of justification, because atonement is talking about what the actual lived, real, divine, human, biographically, chronologically specific Jesus Christ did, including his death on the cross, that has some some effect, some significant effect on our sins, as opposed to what then can happen to us as a result of what he did. And I think taking away the imputation from the atonement side is very important. I'm glad that Bertram lifted that up. Yeah, it's Luther's constant theme that uh, Christ bore sins really, not just metaphorically. Right, 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 right. So in, yeah. in his own body, right? Um, okay. And so this is an, another place in which uh, you just said, because he forgave sins, there's a continuity with his death on the cross as he had to suffer responsibility for those sins he forgave, right? And that's what Bertram means when he characterizes the law as the whole retributive order of things. And that's the same thought as this thought as the profound understanding of moral predication, that you, you alone are responsible for what you did. Nathan to David, thou art the man. No, you can't hide anymore. Adam, where art thou? Right from the Genesis story. Okay, let me, I'll, well, I'll, I'll save most of this for a future episode, but let me just say, I think the problem of characterizing that way is that people's intuition is, well, God could just get rid of retribution or the law, and then Jesus wouldn't have to die. So un unless the law itself is good because of what it protects, then it just seems like the law is this, you know, God randomly allowed retribution to grow up on, on the soil of his creation, and he could just get rid of it rather than getting rid of Jesus. So... We'll just flag that for future discussion. And Yeah, and I would simply immediately say if we do away with retribution, we unleash the devil on the earth. Yeah, that's, that's what I would say right away. Okay. Okay, so let's go on. Um, for Luther, the point is, is that um, the accusation against Christ for being the bearer of sins he forgave would have no right over him uh, since it only condemns sinners and holds only them under a curse. So um, it's, a, it's just because Christ takes our sin upon himself that he becomes liable to this retribution. Okay, Jesus, you want to be a friend of sinners? Let's see what's coming to you, right? That's, that's 
kind of to popularize it a little bit. Okay, so, um, and then Bertram makes this argument too, which I think is quite good. The sin of the world is no mere abstraction, but he says, an enumerative totality of every real sin and sinner. And that's why Luther describes the father sending his son with the instruction, be Peter the denier, Paul the persecutor, David the adulterer, the sinner who ate the apple in paradise, the thief on the cross, in short, be the person who has committed the sins of all. So it happened. Witness, Luther writes, his bloody sweat, his solemn prayer in the garden, and finally the cry of misery on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Luther says, a man who feels such things in earnest has really become sin, death, and the curse itself. So I think here, you know, with this, Luther has really penetrated to the dramatic heart of the passion narrative, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, it was already making me think forward from atonement to justification where Paul writes, it is no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. I always interpreted that very hopefully, but I suddenly realized, well, it also means that Christ who lives in me is the one actively assuming my sins in my ongoing bi biographical life right now. Right. That's his high priestly office, right? Making intercession for us, right? Which is Which means that he can be both in you and above you. <laughs> mm. and, right? and against me in order to be for me by actively taking away from me. I, I think for many of us, we, we clutch at our sins with passion and desire and don't want to let them go. And there's a sense in which Christ robs us of our sins. I think that that's a metaphor that, that uh, Luther would strongly approve of. Uh, pastorally, I mean, the most tragic interactions I've had with people um, is um, when they have been so defeated by the burden of guilt that they bear for their life of sin that they abandon hope and say, I'm beyond redemption. There's no saving me. Um, and why? Why can't you be saved? Why can't you let go of your sins and give them up? Uh, well, that's me. That's the life I've really lived on this earth. If I let go of them, I'm letting go of me. Bertram has really profound thoughts about this, how, how, how uh, superficial it is to easily separate the sinner from the sin. The sins are actually chapters in my autobiography. They're actually part, part of my story, which makes me who I am. But by contrast, Luther's equally dramatic, according to Bertram, with this emphasis on the imminent historical bearing of sins in his own body, in Christ's own body. Um, by his bodily dying, Luther writes, he put those sins in his body to death. He bore and sustained them in his own body, whereby his death and apparent defeat, Luther says, the sins were exterminated. Strong language. Destroyed, conquered, removed, annihilated, purged, expiated, abolished, killed. You know, Sarah, I want to tell a little anecdote here. One time, Robert Kolb, uh, the Missouri Synod historic, uh, Reformation historian, was visiting us in Bratislava. And uh, a student came into my office when I was a uh, student pastor 
with a troubled conscience and was talking to me about some sins she had committed and seeking relief. And Bob jumped right up and laid his hands on the student's head and prayed over her. And at the heart of his prayer, he said, those sins have been buried in the tomb of Jesus and left behind there forever. Wow. wow. That was a great pastoral ap- application of what Luther is trying to say here. And that's so much, isn't that so much more profound than saying, cheer up, don't worry about it, don't be morbid? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when I am... Um... When I do private confession and absolution after the, the penitent has told me what they need to tell me, I say, take a moment and say goodbye to your sins, because after I lay my hands on your head, you can't have them anymore. They're Jesus. They're not yours. And uh, that that makes that, that is a real thing that happens in people's real lives. It's not just a, a theoretical or abstract or assurance kind of thing, but it's the actual thing happening. Great, great. So we're really making progress here, and we're getting down now to the climax of Bertram's presentation. By the way, as Sarah said earlier, we're just giving you a superficial overview of this very profound teaching and strongly recommend that you read it for yourselves. It'll be in the show notes, right? Yeah, both the article and we'll point you towards the Galatians commentary. I mean, read them in tandem. They'll, they'll help. Each will help you understand the other better. Now, here again, Sarah, as Bertram's drawing to a conclusion, I see how he's trying to prevent the misreading that you're so concerned about. And let me just quote this from Bertram directly. By granting the legal order its maximum due, it is now drawn into the fray, not at its worst, not as the emasculated legalism of the scholastics, not as some miscarriage of justice by the Sanhedrin, But at its best, as a consequence, it is the divine law in its own holy integrity, that is, as it justly condemns every sinner, no matter how pious as the enemy of God, which now does what it has to do to this peccator peccatorum, this sinner of sinners. And it is the same divine law at its holiest and best, which, in the Mirabile Duellum, the m- m- amazing duel which ensues is eternally discredited. How can it be true that there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus? Answer, all the other antagonists as well, sin, devil, curse, wrath, death, are present not as caricatures but at the height of their power. It is only because the enemies involved are the real enemies, the ones, in other words, with whom we have to reckon in for life and death before God, that the amazing duel becomes indeed a very joyous duel, a um, very joyous duel. And this is in my one of my books. I talked about this, uh, quoting the Galatians commentary, Sarah, as the law battling the law in order to be liberty for us all. That's how I paraphrase the marvelous duel here. And that, I think, picks up your concern, that the law in the ethical sense of Torah, 
which commands nothing but love for God above all and love for neighbors as oneself. The law in the ethical sense is here battling against law in the juridical sense, the law as prosecuting attorney, by which the holy law of God is a terror, terror to unholy people. That's the, the amazing duel, the law battling the law in order to be liberty for us all. What do you think of that? I think you are you what you just said is not fully sustained by what Bertram says but only in this one essay. I can't I can't speak to his overall thing here. It seems to me the essay ends with just the law is over without any distinction between uh, the the distinctions that you made or that I made in my essay. But uh, we we've done enough on this dead. Let's just let's save that for another episode and we can hash it out because what what Bertram is doing here is so good with certainly with overturning the law's right to be the mediator between the sinner and God. I, I agree entirely with Luther and Bertram that that is over in, in Christ's atoning work. Good. Okay. So let's wrap this up then by returning to the original question. How can our sin really and meaningfully belong to Christ, this purest of persons, both God and human? Luther's answer, Bertram says, must finally be by reason of Christ's love. He's quoting Luther. He did this because of his great love. For Paul says that Christ is the one who loved me and gave himself for me. In the last analysis, explanation of Christ's paradoxical sinnerhood is simply that he is nothing but sheer infinite mercy, Luther writes, which gives and is given the kind of love who gives himself for us, who interposes himself as the mediator between God and us miserable sinners. It was just because Christ was made under the law, born of a woman born under the law, that he could also be the death of the law, the law and its whole tyrannizing mode of predication. That's the part that offends you a little bit, right? For in the end, his intentional self-incrimination which rightfully rendered him guilty before the law, was the self-same intention which in turn incriminated and annihilated the accusing law, his intention namely of invincible divine mercy. So as I said, the law battling the law in order to be liberty for us all. So I've been thinking lately about how much we hate reality and that one of the reasons I think uh, uh, that this is relevant, I promise. One of the reasons I think the internet, social media, smartphones have been been so dangerous to us is because it's allowed us humans to indulge to a m- very advanced degree our desire to avoid reality. And so I think behind a lot of the atonement questions here is what what we think is real. And maybe this is a peculiarly modern or postmodern thing, but I think our fallback position, at least as Americans, and this is regardless of where you fall, you know, politically or culturally or whatever, is we think reality is theoretical and abstract and that we we answer the questions of reality through propositions that are generally and universally true. 
And I think what Luther is trying to say here, what Paul is saying in Galatians, what what Jesus is doing is saying that reality is bodily and it is historical, and that in order to understand how you are saved from your sins and how your sins are taken from you, is you have to look for a reality in a human person who was also divine, and that was real, and who um, lived and walked and forgave sins, and that was real, and then who bodily died died on the cross and that was real and was raised again to everlasting life. And that was, that was real. And all of that is so real that every abstraction generalization theory is pallid and unconvincing in comparison to this actual thing that has happened in reality. And I think one of the reasons I continue to find Luther such a provocative and exciting theologian is it because it seems to me he has a really good grip on reality. And and I think that's why why uh, another reason that a supersessionistic approach is so wrong because I think you would ha- you you have to argue that the the animal sacrifices and offerings and prayers of Israel were real too and they were really doing the thing and Jesus culminating sacrifice is reality building on those realities and extending the reality but not replacing it in some generalized way but in an actual embodied historical way. Yeah, that's just excellent, Sarah. And one of the uh, uh, tributes I can honestly pay to a theologian like Gerhard Ferdi uh, is his polemic against theories, theories of the atonement. Right, right. Theories of the atonement. And that is in the same vein that you're talking about, that we can be, we can be bewitched by theory and thinking that our ideas about what's going on are substitutes for what's going on, <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> you know? and then and then then we go chasing, uh, go on a wild goose chase when we're misled that way. Um, um, and, and that's and why so, you have to why you, you have to actually go to church. <laughs> it's it's so easy to hear this in a moralistic and obligatory way, but like, how do your sins get forgiven? You go to church. How do you hear? How do you actually get? God's love poured into you by going to church. You know, like it's it's not the only place, but for heaven's sake, it's the one place where God willing, you will actually get these real th- things done in your own life. That's how it happens. It's not knowing the content of the gospel. It's where the gospel gets done to you. I think that the 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 theology of the atonement is liturgically expressed in the great tradition of the congregation singing the Agnes Dei. Uh, at the conclusion of the Eucharistic prayer, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. And every time I sing that, it is a moment of of profound peace for me that when I'm thinking of the depressing uh, uh, election coming up between Biden and Trump, when I think about the devastation of the war between Israel and Hamas and the suffering of the people of Gaza, when I think about uh, what the Ukrainian people have endured by those butchers across the border, and of all the other terrible and shameful things that our human race is involved in, when I think of all that and sing the Agnes Day, it gives me a new lease on life. Hmm. And I mean, honestly, looking at all that, the only thing that could explain Christ's atoning work is his fiery furnace of love for us, because there is just no way we deserve it. It has to be love beyond, uh, what is it, love divine, all loves excelling, as the hymn goes. That, that That's the only thing that can really stand behind this. 
Right. And so, you know, that's how Bertram concludes his whole piece. Uh, he quotes Luther, By divine love sin was laid upon him. And in fact, it was the divine love, his very willingness to be the sinner of sinners, which before the law was the most sinful thing about him, Jesus, friend of sinners. And it was his sinful divine love, so to speak, by associating with sinners, by befriending sinners, which compelled the law to attack him, prosecute him, which invalidated that prosecution of the law and its whole legalistic mode of predication. That's, again, uh, why we can say truthfully, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's how Bertram concludes the piece. Yeah. And I, I think that puts some teeth into God's love and makes it actually interesting. My my son Zeke goes to a, a Christian school here in Tokyo, and I asked him one time, you know, like what what kind of would you say is the message you get about Christianity? And he said, so told me one time, well, honestly, all they say is God loves you, God loves you, God loves you to the point that it just is kind of boring. They could afford to like you know shake things up a bit. And I think a lot of the way God's love is preached is really anemic and boring. But that's if God's love is an abstract proposition. If the story is actually, you know what? God loves you, the real you, the you that you think you're hiding successfully from everybody. God knows it all. God loves you anyway. And in fact, God loves you so much, he's determined to get in your life and muck around in it and interfere with it and deprive you of your dearly adored sins. That's how much God loves you. Now, that's yeah, interesting. Right. It's also alarming. And you're going to need um, a whole church to support you in surviving God's interference with your life <laughs> well said sarah very good that's a good place to end an episode on the at one mint there you go at one whether y'all like it or not okay well speaking of robert bertram next time on the show we will be talking about seminex thanks for listening to the queen of the sciences podcast for show notes and more visit our website queenofthesciences.com to find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.